This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to today's episode of Rao Pal Real Vision. Hello and welcome to Yahoo Finance Uncut. I am your host, Jared Blickery, and today I have a very special guest with me, Raul Pal. He is the founder and CEO of the Real, Real Vision Group, and he is here with us today because he is. we have a market that uh, has been confounding investors for quite a long time here. And ever since the pandemic, we've had the vicissitudes guiding us up and down, and we are here to make some sense of this. Now, Raul, by way of background, founded Real Vision. He has uh, conversations with some of the leading minds in finance on a daily basis. They have market reports, both in video and text form. And without further ado, uh, let's say hi here. Raul, thank you for joining us here today. Really excited to, to see you here and to talk with you. It's great to be back. I haven't been on Yahoo Finance for a while, so I'm really looking forward to this. Yes. And uh, let's get down to business. Uh, the, just for our viewers' sake, I'm going to say this is taped, so you might be watching this a couple of weeks into the future, but uh, we've had some really interesting developments. Last week, we had a big Fed meeting, and we had that uh, non-farm payrolls number that came in a bit hot. And uh, we've seen markets uh, kind of surge on the news, but then retreat a bit. And all of this is in the context of a really strong market in 2023, kind of the reverse that we saw of 2022. Uh, back then, we saw the Dow leading the NASDAQ. This year, we're seeing the NASDAQ leading the Dow. Uh, we have the NASDAQ climbing nearly 20% off of its lows. And we know what that means. We're going to get some headlines potentially that might mean something to some investors. Uh, Raul, can you just break this down for us? How are you seeing the markets right now? So I'm a macro guy. So I look at where we are in the macroeconomic cycle and what the markets are forecasting. One thing I note is how utterly negative the market became. Sentiment was an incredible washout. By October, it was by measurable standards, probably the worst sentiment we'd had in 50 years, which is extraordinary because the market really hadn't gone down a great deal. You know, it was 25, 30%, 38% for the NASDAQ. But when I look at the forward-looking indicators for the business cycle, they're all looking for a, a big recession that's coming or certainly a short, sharp recession. But many of the indicators are starting to look up and we're starting to see liquidity come back into the markets. Uh, it started within China, but it's coming elsewhere too. And I think the markets are picking that up. And that's what we're seeing, which is this rally that is the most hated rally I've seen in a while. People <laughs> like, it's got to go down. Earnings need to get marked down. And my thought process, this is actually closer to 2018-19, when the Fed eventually stopped raising rates and the market took off. And it didn't really look back for the whole next year and a half until covid so that's I'm, I'm actually very constructive on markets overall. Um, and I think I'm very comfortable in the fact that most people are very negative. I understand, however, that there's risk to my view. You know, something could mean that the economy is weaker for longer or liquidity doesn't come back. Um, and that's a risk there. But the balance of probabilities are to me that things are probably stronger than expected. And I've noticed that a lot of macro indicators have kind of bucked historical trends over the last few years. I think just in response to the rapidity of the monetary and fiscal responses that we've seen with respect to the pandemic, in other words, adding huge amounts of liquidity and then suddenly taking, taking it away vis-a-vis -vis QT, a number of 75 basis point uh, rate increases by the Federal Reserve. I'm just wondering, do you see the structure of the market being particularly uh, jittery jittery, and uh, fast track compared to historical norms? I Look, I think that's probably the case. Um, I think 
the market has learned something new. And something new is that there is a form of stimulus, which is is quantitative easing, that in a low rate environment tends to get used. Now, rates are up much higher now. So maybe rates have to come down further first. The market's still yet trying to decide where we are with the interest rate cycle. Was the was the rise in rates an aberration and inflation is still subdued at underlying level? Or has something structurally changed? And these big questions are the kind of things the markets are grappling with. They don't really know. But markets themselves have become much more forward-looking in terms of stimulus. So I think this is why things pick up much faster and fall much faster, depending on the rate of change of what's happening with stimulus. So it, it is a very interesting junction. My hypothesis is that inflation itself probably ends up negative by late summer this year. Um, And again, we'll be looking at some sort of stimulus cycle. So let's see. That's really interesting. So let's kind of uh, backtrack a little bit. We're talking about um, a Federal Reserve where Chair Powell has bent over backwards trying to hammer uh, hammer home that he's going to hike uh, he's going to keep rates longer. And yet at the last FOMC conference, uh, press conference in particular, we saw uh, a very bullish response uh, to his rhetoric. He didn't really push back on financial conditions. We can get into the weeds there, but do you think the market, uh, do you think Powell, do you think the, where there's a disconnect, at least for me, between what the market is seeing and what Powell is saying? I'm wondering how you think that gets resolved. So I think it's rate of change that matters the most. And the Fed is signaling, you know what, we're pretty close to an end. You know, 25 after the 50s is already a rate of change decrease of 50%. And soon we're going to get a pause and wait and see, which is exactly what happened in 2018, end of uh, December 2018. It's the rate of change of the rate increases that really matters. Because the rate of changes are like you're holding the beach ball underwater. You take you take your hand off the beach ball and it pops up and it, you know, stimulus is whether you get a gust of wind beneath it. So I think that regardless of what Powell says, even if he keeps rates higher for longer, I don't think it's the, it's the level of rates that's the biggest problem. It's the rate of change of people having to deal with it. That's the problem. Um, And I think that's, that's what caught the market by surprise because this was the fastest change of rates in all history. Yes. And do you see that continuing into the future? And where I come from, I'm a student of market microstructure, and I look at the lower liquidity. The low, there's been low liquidity in the market. You can look at the uh, order book on uh, the on the futures markets, the E-minis. You can look at the order book on some of the major ETFs like SPY and, and the rest. And it's not where it used to be a few years ago. I'm just wondering if this rate of change that is increasing is kind of the new norm, if you see things that way. Um, the, the the rate of change to the new norm, possibly, but don't you know? It's so difficult to tell because we've gone through this pandemic. Is this all a whipsaw? You know, when I put a log chart of ten-year yields up since 1980, we get this huge spike down in the pandemic, and then a and then a huge counteracting spike up, and it's like, well, maybe it's just a whipsaw, and I I think it's really difficult to know. Liquidity certainly not there, but liquidity in the markets is a function of financial liquidity, and financial liquidity is highly restrictive. So I think that's somewhat of a problem for people to try and figure out, okay, what have we got? There's a lot of, and I hate using the expression cash on the sidelines, but you know, there's a lot of people out of the market. And so it tends to get a bit squeezy. The other thing that's changing the structure of markets that you alluded to mm-hmm. is the sheer amount of option activity. I mean, we've never seen anything like that before. Um, and option activity has a tendency to exaggerate moves. Yes, that's a really interesting phenomenon. And maybe we can just explore that and take a bigger picture view because the pandemic has definitely changed the mix of trading, at least from what I see. And, and it's really about the retail trader and certain tendencies that evolved there and that may have spread to uh, what we now see in the options market. And that is, uh, a huge 
percentage of options are just those bets are placed a day before expiration. So they have this zero days till expiration uh, trend that we now see that uh, is also affecting the underlying securities. And we saw this play out in a number of ways. GameStop, you know, that was a very retail phenomenon. But then we saw call buying in some of the mega caps really influence the underlying uh you know, the S&P 500 itself was affected by this phenomenon. So I'm just wondering how you're seeing some of the, these changes and what you think of them in the market. So I think this is a societal change that has happened. There is a generation of young people that basically got left behind by the financial system. They left university with high debts of which they couldn't afford. They couldn't afford a house and real wages have not gone up for 30, 40, 50 years now. So there's a group of disenfranchised people who are looking at the baby boomers and other generations above them saying, well, we didn't have the same disadvantage. We have different dis disadvantages than you had. Don't forget, the average 30-year-old baby boomer had equity PE ratios of eight, bond yields of 17%. Give me nostalgia and, here. Yeah, and cheap property markets, right, as a percentage of household income. You go to a 30-year-old millennial now, it's the opposite. So their expected future return is much lower. So what you started to see was speculation. It's the YOLO idea, which is, I'm going to take more risk because there is no way out. So I'm happy to spend a 1000 bucks on buying call options, because if I strike it rich, it's a lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. And it's... It really is a, it's an actual economic reason why this has happened. Um, and, you know, you've also based communities around this whole idea of risk-taking. And also, they don't mind celebrating their losses either. It's a whole different mentality. And there's a lot of older people <laughs> in markets saying, well, this is rampant speculation. They shouldn't do it like this. But they choose to. And it's a similar attitude you see in crypto markets as well. Um, it's certainly a feeling that there's no way to get ahead unless you speculate. Now, is that gonna pay off for people? Usually not. But I think to understand why it's happened and the opportunity set that many of these young people have, I think is really important. I, I couldn't agree more. And I look at what's happened to what I see as the average account over the last uh, year and a half. Um, meme stocks, those peaked early on in 2021. Uh, I think the, the overall tech market peaked later in the year around November or so. and so many traders have been wiped out um, who started their endeavor, who started their trading careers over the pandemic. Uh, I think it's unfortunate because that's going to live with them and that psychology for a long period of time. I'm just wondering what you would say to retail traders who are newish to the market, um, who've been beaten up, but still have hopes that they can uh, trade for another day, trade to see another day. What would you say to them? I think everybody in markets learns lessons. And you don't become an investor until you've learned the lessons. And usually the lesson is to not be a trader <laughs> um, because it's hard. And I understand the reason why they'd rather buy lottery tickets than invest because, you know, the S&P maybe over the long run gives 8% returns. Well, 8% returns from their savings just isn't enough to move the dial. So I understand it. But there are ways or markets to look at. You better look at markets that have better potential risk rewards over longer term. So I things with a secular uh, tailwind, whether that's cryptocurrencies or economies like India or even technology. And then don't use leverage, but just accumulate those things. And they will move a lot more over time. Um, you know, for example, mm -hmm. going back to that 2018-19 example when the Fed paused last time. So the, the S&P was up about 10%. The NASDAQ was up about 14 So that's a significant outperformance. The kind of long growthy end of technology was up about 24%. And crypto was up 100%. So you can choose to back a horse where you don't have to use leverage that acts like leverage. I saw somebody recently did some research. And again, I'm, these are not recommendations. But, mm -hmm. but Tesla basically trades like a 20x leveraged S&P. Okay, that's interesting. If your view is that Tesla's not going to go to zero, then you get a lot of upside if you think the market's maybe in a bull market for a period of time. And there are other stocks that 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 act like that. So as opposed to taking leverage and short-term bets to hope to win with a lottery ticket, maybe construct a portfolio 
And that might make a real difference to you over time because you can stay in the game that way. Because as you alluded to, the problem is if you trade options, mm-hmm. you're out of the game. You've lost your premium, you're out of the game, you're not you, you can miss out on moves. But if you if you can actually invest in the underlying, hold it and find the right bets, okay. And that requires a bit of homework. Uh, I got to address the uh, elephant or dog in the room. You have a little furry friend sitting to your left there who just entered a uh, name and uh, breed, please. Well, there's two of them. They're two oh, okay. sisters. They're, they're old grumpy sisters now. They're about 12 years old. <laughs> um, they are Cayman mutts. So I think they're a mix between Ridgebacks and Labradors. Uh, and that one who just came in is Zazu, and the other one is Nala, named after the Lion King. Well, I've seen some very large Ridgebacks in my day. I've had uh, a couple of Ridgebacks, amazing dogs. Yes, they are. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, so back to the discussion here. We're t- you were talking about Tesla being a 20-time levered bet on the... So high beta in, with respect to the S&P 500. I've noticed uh, crypto, specifically Bitcoin, behaving the same way. I watch it around key Fed decisions, uh, some of the big economic reports, and it's it's right there with it. I'm wondering, given the FTX fallout, and there's this is a loaded question because there's a ton of background to get into here. Do you see Bitcoin and crypto as another way of attacking uh, these trends? Yes, I do. Um, and again, it's all about how how you take risk and what kind of risk you want to take. Um, but I do, and you know, I'm very much involved with that market because I think technology adoption is driven by something called Metcalfe's law. So it's driven by a different way of valuing things, which is the number of people on the network and the number of connections or activity on that network. Yes. So it's like a mobile phone network and the internet itself. But unlike anything else, you can actually own a part of the network, which is what crypto does. So. It actually, you know, once there's liquidity, it's actually driven by the Fed liquidity cycle as well. It's in a secular bull market. So log trend, long-term log trend of, of Bitcoin just goes up, but it's got these wild swings. And those are driven by the Fed liquidity cycle. So when global M2 is falling, crypto falls. When global M2 is rising, crypto rises. Same with technology stocks. So it's exactly the same thesis what drives these things in the cyclical sense and much like technology, there's a secular tailwind. And we've seen that that rise of technology, something I've been talking about, I call it the exponential age, which is the nexus of a whole group of technologies from crypto to AI, to robotics, to EV, to distributed computing, to internet of things, to many, many of these things all are happening together at the same time. And people like, Raul, you're talking nonsense here. We don't see any of this stuff. And then, Chat GPT comes on and everyone goes, <laughs> oh my God. That was the fastest adoption of the fastest adoption of technology in all history was cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. This went from zero to eleven million users in 20 days. We've never seen anything like it. And that's without Google just launching their new um, platform. They're gonna roll out 20 new AI models. And this is Chat GPT 3.5. I'm hearing that 4, version 4, which blows it out of the water, is going to be released in just a few weeks. And just to um, build on what you were saying, I believe uh, Sundar Pichai issued a code red um, saying that we have to attack this. And that's, you know, we're seeing we're seeing tremendous release freneticism, uh, frenetic activity with respect to AI right now. I had some more stuff on crypto. We can circle back to it. But, yeah, we'll come fact- back to that, but I want to give you something about yeah, go ahead. about AI that I think is I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been waiting for this moment to happen. I've been following it. Um, Emad Mostak, who started Stability AI, is an old friend of mine, ex-macro guy as well. I think this is a global shock and probably deflationary shock, one of the largest ones we've ever lived through. I think it may be a bigger order of magnitude than China joining the WTO. I can't express how powerful what is happening is. And we're all struggling to get our heads around with what this is. And we kind of think of it like a Google search engine that's a bit better. 
But when you actually dig in, it's a whole new world. And the number of applications that they get built on, if you think of Metcalfe's law again, you've got these models you can build at Microsoft, Google, um, OpenAI, um, Stability AI, other businesses on top. There's thousands of these launching. And so the number of applications is going to go exponential. And I don't think we're yet ready to deal with this, what that means. <laughs> I mean, you know, even at Real Vision, we're talking about how do we use AI in video editing? How do we use AI in transcripts? How do we use AI in marketing? How do we use AI? I mean, it's everywhere. And products are already rolled out. Raul, it's almost impossible for me to think of one area where it's not even directly applicable. I'm not even talking about secondarily. I'm talking about directly applicable um, and not just chat GPT. I'm talking artificial intelligence as a whole. We, know we might not have the right interfaces and models yet, but you talk about music, visual arts, the very program that we are right now, we're probably going to have virtual directors. We're going to have talent, maybe a producer or two, and whereas we would have had 15 before. Already the barriers to entry have come down so low in so many different ind industries, including media, what we're talking about here today. Um, yeah. So from an investing standpoint, greatest deflationary shock of our lifetime. Uh, of course, we want to be involved in those companies if we want to take part in this that are leading the way. And it's I see it becoming the Wild West, which is fine because that's what happens with new technologies. Um, you know, you look at the railroads of the 1800s, then the car companies and the transistor and radio companies in the 1920s, all happening all over again. And um I'm just wondering how you're thinking about investing in this. I think you're right. And, and Emad Mostak from Stability AI just tweeted out something that said, I think this is going to be the biggest bubble of all time, Ooh. the dot AI bubble. And I think <laughs> you know that's what you're alluding to, right? This yeah. is what happens when you get such a fundamental breakthrough in technology that everybody has to use it. It will lead to a probably a huge bubble. Okay, but this is super early stage. You can barely invest in this stuff. You know, yeah. yes, you want to own stuff like semiconductors and NVIDIA and all of that stuff. You need to process this stuff. Um, but really, for the average person right now, the easiest two ways are Microsoft and Google because we're valuing them as – we're really valuing them as advertising businesses. And they're about to be valued, again, as step change technology businesses. And again, they've got massive networks, and you're going to create a whole bunch more network activity amongst these two. So I think, you know, if there's ever a reason for the major technology stocks to really have another leg higher, it's on this. And I think it's, it's, it's pervasive and long-lasting. I mean, Microsoft is pivoting their entire business model to add this in, as is Google. And these are just some of the things that they have. I mean, don't forget, Google's got robotics, Google's got EV, Google's got self-driving, Google's yes. got, they've got, they've got quantum computing, all in their Google X labs, which we don't even know about, it's all behind the curtain. So as these technologies get to adoption, they can launch them. It's kind of like, okay, yeah, these guys should do really well. And then later we'll get other opportunities to invest. Yes, I think that's one of the important things too, is that when you have the beginning stages, people kind of rush in and a lot of times people get in at the top of the bubble. If we're talking about the S curve there, um, I think the top of the curve is where people tend to adopt the most. And then a lot of times they get burned, but we're talking about, let me just ask you about the disconnect here. We're talking about a potential bubble in from a technology that is inherently deflationary. And arguably over the last 30 years, thanks to computer technology, the internet, whatnot, we've seen deflationary forces counteract a lot of the inflationary ones. I'm wondering if in your early thinking about this, if it's going to be a similar phenomenon. So, you know, we're, most of us in the macro world have been grappling with, okay, we've got some structural supply issues in some commodities, oil, copper, a few others and you know if economic growth comes back do we end up with a echo inflation yes we've got some structural issues in the labor market uh which i think are overhyped is look we've got a low unemployment rate the reason being is because so many people are out of the workforce because they've retired so you've got less available people so aggregate net demand of those people's wages going up is actually not as much as if the whole population was in the labor force so people need to think about that but 
The other thing people are talking about is deglobalization. You know, does it mean when we build new factories in the United States that that's inflationary? Well, firstly, we can look at what Google's just done with its factories. Those factories don't have any people in them. And if you can look through these amazing drone footages of uh, of uh, these drones flying through these massive gigafactories. There's no people, so it's robots. So it's robots and AI is ruling the day. So that's interesting. That gives you a little tip into the future of how this might play out. So my guess is if we do get an echo boom, it's going to be massively offs offset. You know, echo boom in commodities mm -hmm. and maybe even some wages, it's going to be massively offset by the rise of, rise of AI because any company is going to make the decision, do I hire another person to pay those wages or do I just use technology instead? And I think every company in the world is going through that decision right now as we speak. I, I think they have to, and the ones who are not are going to be get are going to be left behind even more than they are now. Which is another reason it becomes a bubble because yes. it's like the internet; everybody's forced to use it from the get go. And but so most people don't know how, though. Most exactly. people are going to get it wrong. And uh, here's another thing: I, I. I think about this uh, quite a bit, and computers for the first time, thanks to AI, are finally getting friendly. Um, AI just figures things out. It gets the answer, and sometimes it's a fuzzy process and it's approximation, but a lot of times, and remarkably consistency, consistently, it comes to the correct act, uh, to, the, to the correct act uh, answer, and. If technology gets easier, you know, if it becomes more adoptable, I think early on in the internet, I was I remember I was an early adopter, but nobody really jumped on the bandwagon because it was difficult to simply log on. If the average computer device becomes trivial to use now, and no matter how sophisticated the technology under underneath, this opens up the door to massively uh, get scale with an audience that you wouldn't have had the ability to even approach otherwise so people who who struggle with technology now um and there might be a lot of those people i, I don't want to get into demographics but you have a baby boomer population that is not necessarily on the same page with tech on the TikTok page as some of the youngsters and if they are able to get on board with some of these new technologies without the um without the growing pains i just see I mean, that as it i as mean it I, I, I can give you a perfect example of that do. so please do mother-in-law staying with me um, and she is writing a book, which is a geological history of the world in logarithmic scale. It's quite an amazing thing um, because it's a, <clears throat> the history of the world is actually yeah, very long, millions of yes. years. So she's thinking about some of the text that she needs to write through it because she's actually illustrating the entire thing. And I point out ChatGPT, and I didn't know how she was going to use it. So we were talking last night over dinner, and she says, oh, yeah, you know, I asked it to summarize the last 100,000 years, explained it needs to be in a log scale and tell, asked it what the largest geological breakthroughs and changes on Earth were, what the technology changes and societal changes, and it wrote the whole thing out in 30 seconds, three seconds. Yeah. Three seconds. And that was like, oh, she was like, for her, it's like easy, because she said, I've just asked an expert. And you're like, yeah, you've just made technology super accessible for everybody. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think about, and uh, it's almost overwhelming as well. Just wondering, um, we've seen, so there is definitely a current push towards adoption and distribution, just getting it out the door. Google wants to get it out the door. Microsoft wants to get their next version. Um, just wondering what you think the, the more short-term developments are going to be here. Is it going to be this arms race where everybody's looking at these leaders? Just how does it, how do you think this evolves over the next year or two? Look, I think it's fascinating. And it's fascinating because of stability AI. So the AI is basically held with two giant corporations, Microsoft and Google. Now, we know Apple's developing their own, not released yet, beyond Siri, and I'm sure Amazon are in the race. And there'll probably be others. The Chinese obviously have. So these guys, even though it's called open AI, it's not open they're heavily restricting. If you listen to Sam Altman, it was a shocking speech he gave when this started rolling out. He's like, you you could see his face of fear, which is like the technology that we have, we can't roll out. Yes. Society is not ready for the speed of which we could release this technology. So we are purposely going slow and cautiously. I spoke to the Google team yesterday, same story. It's like, 
you have no understanding what we have and we can't really expose it to the world. And there's a lot of societal and terrifying things that they talk me through some of the scenarios that they're concerned over. Meanwhile, stability AI is open source. Everybody's got it. Now, regulators have taken 10 years and they can't regulate crypto. How on earth <laughs> are they going to deal with this? Yes. So stability AI is the game changer um, because there's somebody who can't be held back and they're global. So that means that anybody can innovate there. So it's going to be very difficult. It's very difficult to keep the genie in the bottle and it may come faster than we can even deal with. You know, another thing, when you were mentioning these two behemoths, first, one of the first things that pops into my mind is, okay, we got Microsoft and Google Alphabet. One of those two companies is facing serious antitrust pressure. One of those companies faced it decades ago, not necessarily in the clear, but they're not under they're not under the same microscope. And of course, at Microsoft, they had their own antitrust uh, concerns with their browser, uh, which are going to be, I guess, Integrate. I would think that they're going to be integrating ChatGPT and Bing into that once again. Um, but then Alphabet, and I, I just wonder how you see. Not necessarily. I'm not like looking for an, a legal answer here, but with respect to the public zeitgeist, um, there has been pressure uh, from both sides here. How do you see that playing? So I think we've got a bigger problem at hand. Really, really. I've actually been speaking to as many people about it as possible. Is we're about to launch chat to video that that's coming out in the next six months, again, from stability AI, and I guess the others. So now we've got chats, um, you know, text to audio, text to video, text to text. So we can now scale fake content at a scale of which you couldn't understand. So you could, I could go onto the web and see you, Jared, in a video telling me that Tesla's filing for bankruptcy tomorrow and you've got to get short or get out. And it will look like you. It'll have Yahoo Finance on it. It'll sound like you and it won't be you. Okay, now what happens in two years time is we have the US election. We couldn't deal with it with Cambridge Analytica. We have no way of dealing with this. So this is where we tie back into blockchain, which is one of my other big thematics, is that we absolutely need digital identity and authentication of content. Because somebody, whether it's a state player or any other nefarious player, can use deep fakes at scale. We can make millions of different variations for different people with different messages, and you won't know that it's not real. It's And so let's go back to the question you were asking. Yes. Google and Google particular run a risk of if they get caught in the middle of this in the election, they're going to get broken up. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's of that kind of magnitude. You know, Facebook less so. It's Google's YouTube that's a real problem here. And I, they are aware, but I don't think anybody quite aware of the pressing urgency. And don't forget, they will get blamed. Yes, so, they will. Because they have both the AI and the delivery system. So that this moment in time is is quite a tightrope that people are walking. And I think we need to figure it out as fast as we can. It's pretty crazy because we're just thinking about these are these are nascent thoughts in our heads right now, and they probably don't even scratch the surface of what's going to happen in five, 10 years. Uh, but you mentioned blockchain and with respect to um, digital identity, uh, I'm wondering, is it fair to say that blockchain solves it? Is it a, I, if it's a step in the right direction, how do you marry, how do you think those two technologies are ideally married? So I think in a world where nothing is real, and that's fine, that's the digital world we're going in. That's the world of the metaverse, right? We live in a digital world. The breakthrough of what blockchain technology was, was the way to authenticate and create scarcity around digital assets or digital, anything digital contracts, anything, because anything in a digital world goes to zero in value because you can create infinite amounts of it. I.e., you can make infinites of deep fakes. So how do you create content that is authenticated or people that are authenticated? 
because you can create millions of bots that all yes. act like humans because we've seen chat gpt and they can pass the law exams and the medical exams so this is a something people haven't got their heads around so so what you can have with blockchain technology is the ability to have a digital passport of which you can go around the web and prove it's yourself now we want privacy as well so we can be different people on different platforms a gaming platform versus google or whatever so there's something called zero knowledge proofs which will basically doesn't show your kyc but proves you've done it so you can prove that you are a person and that you're real etc and that allows you to move around in a way that is more suitable for this day and age that's the the best method but we need all these systems to be interoperable i need to be able to move my token around and log in to my google and my microsoft and my amazon and everywhere else um and so it can be authenticated and they can trust each other's systems content wise it's more difficult because blockchain doesn't allow for massive data buckets to go on chain so you can't put a whole video file on ethereum right now or whichever chain it is so somehow we need to use watermarking it's a bit clunkier still but you know many content providers have some sort of watermarking so it will work it will happen i think human id is probably the best place first um, and maybe companies you know like whoever google who are using ai will have to have ai id too so you know i mean we don't mind we know they're going to be part of our world and they're going to be in our twitter feeds and they're going to be in our you know everywhere so it'd be good if they just had identified as ai and then we know At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. With respect to, so we finally circled back to crypto here, and let's use that opportunity for a minute or two. Uh, we talked a bit about leverage quite a bit before as well, and it seems to me the central problem with respect to the blow up that we had in crypto was a huge amount of leverage um, that had been employed in the system by various actors, some of them bad, FTX, et cetera. Um, and this was over uh, a general theme of de-risking by the markets. Uh, global central banks were reigning in liquidity. We had QT in the U.S. I mean, I did a, I did an experiment in my head. I thought, you take out the QT, um, if it had been a little bit less severe, it's quite possible that some of these Ponzi schemes that we saw in FTX, I think it's difficult to call it anything else, would have continued. Um, I'm just wondering whether leverage is an, is an inherent problem in a system like crypto where you don't have a backstop such as the Fed. So if you build a business on an asset that has an 80% volatility, and you and your business model is leverage you will go bust it's just a matter of probabilities and the probability over an extended period of time is about 100 percent and people forget that this is not building leverage on bonds or real estate which have yes. much lower volatility this is something that does this all day can rally 10x can fall 90 percent so leverage gets exposed really fast so when you switch from bull market to bear market the system can take the first step down because there's inherent profits, but then the profits get wiped out and you get the margin call. And that's when the leverage gets unwound. You know, sure, if you're a sophisticated trader, if you want to use leverage, that's fine. But A, retail people should not use leverage in an 80% volatile asset. It's crazy. You don't need it. The returns are high enough when it works anyway, and the risks are high enough when it doesn't work that you don't need the leverage. And you shouldn't be allowed to build business models on it, particularly if you're custodying other people's assets. Sure, if you want to run a hedge fund, if you want to be three arrows capital and blow up, that was their problem and the problem of the people who lent them money. But if you're an exchange that's doing it, and then I think you, you run into more problems. And so there's, there was a number of issues where they kind of tried to rapidly follow what the traditional markets do, which is a lot of leverage. Yes. 
without any of the processes, protocols, and oversight of which the traditional markets have had to develop. Now, that doesn't mean traditional markets are much better. I mean, I got caught at an MF Global. I mean, that was John Corzine, <laughs> head of Goldman Sachs, right? Yes. And that was the same system. And yeah, humans love leverage and humans love blowing up when times get a little bit tricky. So that that's not going to change. Um, but there needs to be more oversight in the space for the use of leverage amongst who gets that leverage. And anybody building a business model based on leverage, it's just not going to last. We are arguably still in a crypto winter. We've had a nice lift off the lows in Bitcoin. I'm wondering what the next big leg in Bitcoin looks like with respect to some of the other technologies that we've been talking about. Because with this meteoric rise of, of AI, and I think you, we both agree we're only in the beginning here. Does Bitcoin become kind of a companion technology? Is there still the the latent interest in it enough to get to um, rapid new highs? Or is it still going to be this huge speculative vehicle? Or, or do you think traders are just going to move on to something else? So um, I think crypto is driven by the same thing of what drives the technology market, so the liquidity. So liquidity is turned in technology, it's turned in crypto. I think we're in crypto spring. That's the point. So I think, you know, if we look back to other crypto springs, it tends to do a lot, you know, 100, 200, 300% corrects for a while. And, you know, when we get to the stimulus cycle, eventually it starts rising again. So that's driven by the, the liquidity. The adoption side of the equation, well, we're waiting for, okay, what's the next thing? Even the CEO of Microsoft said, it's coming. The chat GPT moment is coming in crypto. We just don't know which one it's going to be. Like we knew AI was coming, and then when it came, we we're all shocked. So I know, you know I deal with a lot of corporates in the space, financial investors in the space, banks are in the space, governments are in the space. So everybody's coming. You know, the UK is going to roll out central bank digital currency. Singapore, India's rolling one out. So it's happening everywhere. The US is a bit slower on some of that stuff. So I think we're going to see a lot of these applications coming. Um, this crypto winter was interesting because a lot of the VC companies have poured a lot of money into businesses who over crypto winter have been building. So what we'll see coming out the other side is new is new projects, like we saw NFTs and DeFi out of the last cycle. So what are we going to see here? We'll also see probably another rise of DeFi. So I think the adoption still continues. We talked about one of the big needs of digital ID, which is a blockchain solution. Right. Uh, we're seeing global business marketing models, all sorts of things changing to this Web3 model. We don't really know yet what the killer app is going to start with. But, you know, I don't see a slowdown in that. And I don't see a slowdown in the real interest. There's a slowdown in speculative interest, which is fine. You know, markets get overly speculative, um, particularly because this is really like a, a VC business. Um, and most VC businesses don't trade real time, but this trades real time 24-7. So when I look at where things are more important, I think the main thing to talk about is less about Bitcoin because Bitcoin doesn't do anything, just is. And that's fine for some people. It's fine. They want that asset that, that's kind of the purest form of digital value. Mm -hmm. But Ethereum, now that's getting very interesting. Firstly, we've got smart contracts and we've seen how a lot of those things can change. We've seen California started to talk, this is actually on Tezos, about putting vehicle licensing or vehicle documentation chain, another great use case. Any contract can go on chain that we use. But also importantly for the finance world, Ethereum has a yield and it has a roughly 5% yield right now. So that's interesting. So now you've got a technology asset with a yield. But that was a one-year lockup, so you have to lock up your money, and you have to take the risk of what is Ethereum going to do over the course of that year, much like you would if you buy a government bond in a foreign country. This is a foreign currency. But in the new fork that's coming, which is the Shanghai fork, they're introducing liquid staking, which means you've got a money market curve. <clears throat> the money market curve means that you can lock up your ETH for a day, a week, a month, a year, just like you can with your money. So that means it becomes highly usable for a financial instrument, for all sorts of different things. And the unlocking DeFi is very big. It also means that institutions are very happy to hold it. A pension plan that has a long-term you know, need to match liabilities can hold Ethereum and they get bond yields plus technology. 
So I think there's a lot to come still from this space. And I think the integration with AI, um, I think the integration with a lot of the technologies, Internet of Things, I think we'll see streaming payments using cryptocurrencies because it's a more efficient way of doing it coming from cars. And I'm sure Elon will pioneer that as long as others. But that's we're seeing. We're even seeing already servers, server farms in space paying for um, being paid for usage by satellites in crypto. That's how fast <laughs> this is moving. Yeah, wait until we uh, colonize the moon and Mars and have to deal with those uh, Lorentz transformations on the latency and all that good stuff. Um, I, I can only, my brain goes wild just uh, thinking about the possibilities, but bringing it back to Earth and the immediate, uh, I guess, uh, the immediacy of the need to deploy investments now. When you, you were just talking about commodities and gold, I want to talk about gold for a second, just because, um, you know, is it, is it finally being consigned to the dustbin of history? Of course, we know that it is scarcity with respect to what the supply that we have on Earth. Um, but do you think we finally move on beyond that? Because we always we always see this return to hard money and the desire to when we see high inflation. It's only natural. Um, but we didn't see for a variety of technical reasons that you can get into or not want to, um, that gold didn't really function as the inflation hedge that a lot of people thought it would. And you, we can talk about real yields and what the Fed was doing and why that didn't happen. But what are your thoughts on traditional commodities here? So my thoughts on gold are, I, I like gold because I think gold is just a probabilistic bet on, on monetary stimulus. So negative real yields, debasement of currency, you own gold. Now, the issue gold has got is it's got a competitor, which is crypto, that does the job much better in the times of actual debasement. Crypto, um, gold does well in holding its value. So even though gold sold off, it obviously didn't sell off as much as crypto over time, but crypto has a much higher leverage because of the bet on technology. But I think gold certainly has a place. The two commodities that are super interesting to me, um, one is copper. The long-term, you know, if you look at the monthly chart of copper going back, you know, the last 10 years, if it breaks anywhere near the highs, it's going up. Yeah, it needs to go back a, lot, a bit longer than that chart. Let's see if we can take it back a little. Yeah, let me put on the uh, monthly count. Uh, monthly yeah, count. put it on the monthly for a decent period of time. Here we go. So, so this... if it starts breaking all of these series of highs from 2011, 2012, uh, 2022, right, there's a lot of blue sky. It's like forming a huge wedge pattern to me. Um, and I'm very interested in copper because we know the world will be short of copper as we move to EV. How I'd love to think about this is if you don't like EV, you're not sure about the theme, you don't like to invest in Tesla or whatever it is, just buy copper and it should work. So I like copper and the other one I like for the similar secular theme based around technology is carbon. So EU has a carbon market. I think there's a ETF called K, I'm actually, it's, it's like a crane shares carbon, EU carbon. KRBN? No, the, uh, there's another one, KR EU or UA, EUA. I'll look for it here. KEUA, I think it is. And that's the EU allowances. All right. The EU has an incredible carbon-based system, um, and that's super interesting. Hopefully, that's the one. Um, and again, we've got this series of highs, and the EU is kind of tightening up on its carbon supply, and companies have to buy carbon by law in, in Europe, or they get fined for it. So you have this secular tailwind with government behind it, that's forcing carbon prices higher over time. So that's another interesting market in the commodity markets that most people don't look at that I realize that copper and carbon, gold I think is decent. Um, I'm less sure about oil, uh, natural gas, and those for the time being. We got just a couple minutes left here. Maybe uh, we, take, we take a little uh... A road trip down memory lane here. Just tell us about Real Vision, your ideas about founding it, why you did it, and um, your journey through the pandemic uh, here, along with everybody else. So very quickly, I lived in Spain back in the, over the financial crisis and then the EU crisis. 
And I saw it viscerally firsthand how it affected people. And I was one of the few people in my research service, Global Macro Investor, that had predicted this and, you know, all of the big hedge funds were my clients, et cetera. But people come up to me in the street saying, why didn't we know? And I saw so many people wiped out. Friends went bankrupt. It was terrible. And the question was, why didn't we know? And I knew at that point in financial markets, those at the center of the financial system had all the information and nobody else had the information. And it was held by intermediaries and the intermediaries being the banks and the investment houses. And I thought, I need to change this. So the idea was, how can I democratize financial knowledge? And so I thought, I had the crazy idea of starting a video company back in 2014, yeah. uh, before really video was that prevalent. And we started filming the world's most famous hedge fund managers and saying, what do you think? And what is your view? And sitting down for an hour when media was at three minute sound bites at that point. And so it really resonated and it really helped people. And we've taken people on a journey. We talked about Bitcoin first in 2014, uh, got people through, educated them. So we believe a lot in education. So that whole journey has become an incredible journey and a big community of people within Real Vision who are super passionate about learning. So we refer to them as the learning tribe. They come to Real Vision and want to learn different opinions because it's not about me. It's about all of the people, the analysts, strategists, much like you do, Jared, to bring them onto the platform, talk to them, get proper deep insights uh, we have written research as well. And over the pandemic, we became really people's window into the world of what was going on in finance, because people were terrified. First thing is the markets cratered and then they exploded higher. The rise of crypto, GameStop, everything all happened at one point. It was the most intense period. Um, and people came to find Real Vision a place they could trust. Um, and so you know, that, that's been an amazing journey. We help people in the crypto journeys. We've launched a whole education business with amazing kind of video-based tutorials to teach people how to become better investors and done it ludicrous pricing as well to make it democratized. So it's not all about charging the highest price possible, but getting it to the most number of hands possible. And, you know, that's been the journey of Real Vision and we continue that journey and we're building out a whole new platform and a whole bunch of experiences as we speak, embracing the Web3 world. We're going to be embracing the AI world as well. So more exciting thing to come from us on that and um, and looking after the community that we've got. Raul, I'm very excited by that. Uh, democratizing finance and all those great things you said, kind of our mission too here at Yahoo Finance. And by the way, I should note that Real Vision is one of our partners. So some of their content will appear on our site. And of course, you can see that content over at realvision.com. Uh, this has been a journey and I hope to look back on this in a few years and uh, when AI is running the world and just see, see our thoughts on this uh, in this uh, very you know, nice time. I, yes, I think we're going to be spinning to try and keep up with with what is happening and this is just ai i mean yeah. we've got so i mean wait till the robots come in full force <laughs> i mean don't forget already amazon has half a million robots and one and a half million workers so a third of their workforce is robots as long as they that'll don't flip. vote that'll flip yes yeah, they don't vote they will vote at some point it's all over <laughs> We got to end it there, but great, great picking your brain here. Raul Pal, founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you. Thank you.